Recovery Elevator, episode 256. I think when you're ready to surrender, there's going to be at least one person who's who's ready to, to help you and really take you to the place you need to go to get to get well. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Greg. He's 35 years old. He's from Orange County, California, and he took his last drink on October 2nd, 2012. In the interview, he talks about when he was drinking, it felt like he was living life with giant weights around his ankles. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love it. Registration is now open for the Recovery Elevator live event, Dancing with the Mind, which takes place in Denver, Colorado at the Hilton Garden Inn, Thursday, June 11th to Saturday, June 13th. You'll learn how to create your future alcohol-free self that no longer needs alcohol and draw it to you like a magnet in the present moment. We'll be doing group meditations where music will be performed live. And of course, you'll build lifelong in-person connections with others who don't drink. This event, like all Recovery Elevator events, is going to be fun, and I hope to see you there. Go to recoveryelevator.com to register and for more information. Our latest accountability group, Cafe RE Up, launched 14 days ago, and members are building those in-person connections fast. If you're thinking about taking the plunge into a way better life, then this is a great opportunity. All signups for the month of January will be placed in Cafe RE Up, and this group will be capped at 350 members to ensure intimacy. Okay, let's get started. Here we are, 14 days into the new year. Some are 14 days alcohol-free, others much longer than that. Some are still seeking sobriety. Others are listening in support of those who wish to quit drinking. Regardless, we are all doing our best. Don't forget that. In fact, I want you to hit pause on this episode and remind yourself that you, Michelle, or Tony, or whoever you are, are simply doing your best, including myself. Okay, welcome back. So today, I'd like to cover what happens to the dome when you stop drinking alcohol, when the shit chemical called alcohol is no longer pulsing through your body and mind. There's a long list of benefits of going dry that extend beyond glowing skin and better sleep. According to Saroy Abacus, MD, a board-certified psychiatrist specializing in addiction medicine, the mental health aspects are just as important as the physical ones. She also says the mood and cognitive ability improves dramatically. Cool, I'm on board with that. So, what happens on day one? Depending on how much you drank the night before, words like awesome, joyful, exuberance, and Disneyland usually aren't used to describe day one. Reason why? Since alcohol causes the brain to release the feel-good chemical dopamine, there will be a scarcity of dopamine in the brain. Be prepared to experience psychological symptoms such as irritability, food cravings, anxiety, and even signs of depression, in addition to physical withdrawal symptoms like restlessness, headaches, dehydration, and nausea. So what happens after a couple days? After roughly three to seven days alcohol-free, you'll begin to reap the mental and emotional benefits. First and foremost, you should start sleeping better, resulting in increased energy, improved mood, and sharpened cognitive function. I know for myself it was difficult to get more than a couple hours of sleep the first three nights. After that, so much better. And real quick, my sleep improved for the following three years after quitting drinking. In fact, it's the best part of my day which is going to sleep. I absolutely love the last two hours a day. 
Previously, the thought of going to sleep without alcohol gave me anxiety. That time is gone. So in regards to sleep, while alcohol, a depressant, can help you fall asleep faster, it also contributes to poor quality sleep later, reports the National Sleep Foundation. It can block REM sleep, aggravate breathing problems, interrupt your circadian rhythm, and lead to more disruptive bathroom trips throughout the night. Over time, better quality sleep can curb mood swings, diminish food cravings, and improve cognitive function, resulting in mental clarity and sharpened memory. Pre-existing mental health issues such as anxiety and depression are also exacerbated by alcohol. When I removed alcohol from my life, I found that 90% of my anxiety went away with just a couple months. If you experience anxiety or depression, you'll begin to feel more emotionally stable and clear-headed without booze and the resulting hangover. According to Meredith Watkins, a representative for American Addiction Centers, because alcohol is depressant and has a sedative effect, people often use the substance to unwind. But it can also increase anxiety within just a few hours of consumption. And we all know of the anxiety that shows up the next day. That's the worst. If you're struggling with anxiety, feeling that tornado of doom in the solar plexus area, my heart is with you. It's the worst. I've been there. Anxiety is what fueled my alcohol consumption because temporarily the alcohol helped with the anxiety. But when my body got rid of the alcohol, anxiety levels spiked higher than before because the body was craving alcohol or what the body knew what worked or temporarily worked. So we have a saying for this. It's called between a rock and a hard place. So if you do find yourself there, I just want to let you know I was there as well. And guess what? You're going to be fine. We're going to get through this together. So what happens to the brain after a month or so from quitting drinking? This is when meaningful reflection and long-term lifestyle shifts may come into play. Without the alcohol, cravings, sleep deprivation, and mood swings that come with drinking and hangovers, you'll find it easier to maintain a healthier lifestyle. You'll have more time to devote to self-care or other hobbies that once took a backseat to drinking. Rather than spending your Sunday recovering from a Saturday night out, for example, you may run a 5K, go check out a new hike, go skiing, or catch up with a friend. So here's what happens in the first year and beyond. In the brain, neurons that no longer fire together no longer wire together, which means the neural connections that spark when we want to drink or take a drink begin to fade. And within time, due to neuroplasticity in the brain, new neural connections in the brain are created that don't involve alcohol. In the resulting months after quitting drinking, the brain will find itself in more relaxed alpha states or in a more relaxed state of calm. When we're drinking or the day after, we're constantly experiencing high beta states of brain activity, which is a state of consciousness where we are in constant fight or flight. When we are in high beta states, the body is told this isn't a time to create or feel joy or heal or digest food or repair damaged cells or be enthusiastic about anything except finding another drink. You'll create new neural architecture in the brain as the left and right hemispheres start communicating again in a more cohesive manner. As the brain reaches a new homeostasis without alcohol, you'll begin to experience more states of calm, and you may even begin to lose yourself in an activity or hobby as you used to. This is called a flow state, and we'll cover this more in depth next week. In the brain, there is no longer a drought with melatonin, and the brain begins to create perhaps the most important chemical of all, oxytocin, which is regarded as the connection chemical. When the brain starts creating oxytocin, the heart begins to feel warm. 
Once the brain has extended this olive branch to the heart again, a coherence begins with the two most important systems in the body, the brain and the heart. Real quick, the heart, which is the most powerful muscle in the human body, also has a mind of its own, as in energy from your mind and the external environment are giving it instructions. Oftentimes in heart transplants, the recipient will take on characteristics of the previous owner. For example, I read once that a gal who received a heart transplant from a younger guy began to like a different type of music, different types of foods, and different outdoor activities. When she started doing research on the guy who she got the heart from, she found that that guy had all those similar characteristics, like the same food, music, etc. There's another story of a young gal who got a heart from another younger gal who was murdered. They never found the murderer, but when the gal with the new heart started having dreams of who the murderer was, they went to the police and then they found the murderer. Crazy stuff. So when the brain comes back online, it says to the other systems in the body, Yo, it's me again. Sorry about that. I'm back. And it's time we all start working together. Again. And once these systems are communicating again, a full-on internal coherence occurs. And then, watch the fuck out. It's game on. Before we hear from Greg, let's hear from today's sponsor, Care Of. Care Of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long term. Set a resolution you'll actually keep. Make 2020 the year to prioritize you and commit to staying on top of your health. Care Of's quiz helps you find the vitamins and powders that will support your specific health goals this year, like improving your fitness routine or managing stress. Quality you can see and taste. Care Of is focused on the quality, science, and research that goes into every one of their products and recommendations. Care Of's yummy protein powders are made with real ingredients you can recognize, like organic cocoa and pink Himalayan sea salt. Getting the right vitamins and proper nutrition is key to recovery. And guys, health is made easy thanks to Care Of's online quiz. Take a short online quiz and answer some questions about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle, and Care Of will recommend a list of vitamins and supplements specifically for your health needs and goals. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code ELEVATOR50. That's ELEVATOR50. Again, for 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code ELEVATOR50. Hey, Greg. How are you? I'm good. Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Greg. It's great to have you. I'm excited to share your story with the Recovery Elevator audience Let's get right into this, Greg. When was your last drink? Last drink was October 2nd, 2012. October 2nd, 2012. Uh, Nice job. You've got some serious time away from alcohol. How's it feel? It feels great. I got, you know, shortly after I got sober, I got my life back. And just being able to be present in the world is just a gift, you know? Yeah, those are two big ones. You get your life back and you're able to be present in the world. I can't think of much more that we need to be wholesome as a species, as a human being. So before we get any further, Greg, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, well, I was born in Orange, uh, Orange County, California, 1983, December 28th, <laughs> and I uh, we lived there for a while, then we moved to the Inland Empire, which you know I wasn't too fond of, but I went to high school there. And, you know, always had a uh, knack for music and an interest in the arts, acting especially. So I just kind of went out of the gate and just started pursuing uh, music and, and acting. And 
and now I'm able to actually do that for a living. I, I act, and I have a daughter. She's four years old. She just turned four. She's in preschool now, so it's great. Uh, being able to hang out with her and go on adventures is pretty much what I love to do for my spare time, as well as you know, creating music and things like that. But yeah, it keeps me pretty busy. Nice. And listeners, Greg emailed me and uh, I had recently done an episode. This is 237. And let me check my notes real quick. 237 was titled Celebrities Who Don't Drink. And I also covered in that episode why addiction rates are higher in the creative scene in Hollywood, specifically with actors and some musicians. And right around that time, Greg emailed me. And he talked about some of the projects that he has done. And he said he recently was in the movie, the MGM movie Operation Finale, starred alongside Oscar Isaac and Sir Ben Kingsley. He's also in a film, starred in a Bloomhouse film, which is going to be released on Shudder early next year. Uh, and recently, he's been a recurring guest star in the recent final season of Amazon's Sneaky Pete. So I got this email from Greg. I'm like, awesome. I want to ask Greg firsthand why addiction is so rampant in, in the creative scene in, in Hollywood and that in that arena. Um, but before we get to that, Greg, I want to dive into more about your story. Give listeners some background about your drinking. Um, when it first became problematic, how much were you drinking? Did you, uh, what were your attempts to quit like? Did you ever attempt to moderate? Um, yeah, take it, uh, take it away. I'm excited to hear it, Greg. Okay, well, I guess the underlying cause of that was a lot of depression and, and anger towards certain situations in my family dynamics. But when I found the bottle, it just kind of relieved that. And I'm also introverted, so I found that I thought I could be on more. I could kind of... What I didn't know was I was masking my feelings. And at first, it was you know social lubricant. It made it easier to talk to people. It made it easier to kind of deal with things that I had kind of tried to avoid or repress. But I guess in my in my early drink, you know, it was fun to be the clown, or whatever. Nobody really took it too seriously or thought it was, I was being dangerous with it or, or irresponsible. But as I started to get a little older in my 20s, early to mid 20s, it got really out of hand to where, you know, I wasn't drinking for fun anymore or, or to kind of mask those things. It was, I was relying on it to to just get through the day. And at my worst point, I think I was drinking a half gallon of whiskey or rum or vodka a day and it just became such a problem and I was afraid to ask for help but yeah that's kind of where it took me and uh eventually I got out of that and I was able to help a family and friends to get out of that but it was kind of dark for a while there Greg, that's a lot to unpack there. And I want to dive a little deeper on the depression and the anger dealing with the family dynamic and how you mentioned you were drinking to mask those feelings. When was there awareness or did you realize that the alcohol was being used to mask those feelings? I guess it was the first time I had a drink. I was at a, a party. It was in high school. I was like 16 years old. I was really, I didn't even say one curse word. It's really straight edge and my friends were all drinking and I thought this is terrible you guys shouldn't be doing that they, they eventually said just try one drink before you judge it and I remember I immediately took a drink and then from there I almost polished the bottle and I was on top of the roof getting ready to jump off of it, it felt like I was so free you know I felt and and at that time I realized that it kind of made all those feelings of anger and, and depression kind of go away for a while but as we all know, immediately the next day when I was feeling terrible, there was a thought in my head 
you know, you need to take another drink. You need to have another drink. And it wasn't as prev- prevalent as it would become over the course of my drinking career. But I realized that it kind of freed me up initially from having to deal with that depression and that anger. So it's probably right from the get-go, it kind of started like that. Yeah, Greg, I know listeners can resonate with what you just said, and I personally can as well. My first drink when I was around 13 or 14 wasn't a first drink. It was a first 15 or 20 shots, shall we say. And I didn't quite have the yeah. awareness you had. It wasn't like when I when I first took that drink, I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is helping with all the depression, the anger, with, with the family dynamics, et cetera. I just got this warm glow, and it made the loneliness from childhood, which I actually wasn't aware of at the time, it made all that settle and it made me feel good. And you're right. The next day I felt like shit, but there was also this unconscious momentum happening saying, Hey, look, Paul, we found this magical elixir to deal with the, uh, with eternal, with the internal loneliness. Yeah. And after that, yeah, it was, exactly. it was kind of game on and I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of it. So as it ramped up, you mentioned your early twenties. That's, that's when you realize, look, this is, this is becoming an issue. I think I heard a half gallon of whiskey a day. Did you try to quit before that, or was there any awareness that, like, look, this this is not sustainable? I don't think I was that aware, and, you know, being aware, like, what I just talked about, uh, at the time, I was probably a little bit more ignorant to it, but at, I think later on, there was a lot of things that happened that kind of made me embarrassed or made friends or family a little bit resentful of me or very angry at me, and there were all these, like, cumulative things that started to add up to where the the seed got planted that maybe there is a problem here but it wasn't until I was maybe uh, 25 or 26 that the first time I I really said okay well is there an option to get off of this stuff and if there is who do I talk to and say I think I need help will you help me I had this preconception that somehow if I said to somebody that was very close to me, I think I need help, they would just kind of pat me on the back and say, oh, it's okay, you'll get through it. But it was actually the opposite effect of what, what really happened in reality was it was like, we've been waiting for you. Come with us. We'll get you into treatment. You know. So once I freed myself up on that, that was when it, everything started to change. So, so Greg, so what I'm hearing there, it's almost you got more support than you were expecting? Yeah, I think that happens a lot if you reach out. Well, sometimes it's harder for people to, to have that immediately because every family uh, dynamic is different. But I think if you reach out to the right group of people or if you have someone who's real supportive in your life, you go through your whole entire drinking career thinking, oh, nobody really knows you know, the severity of it. Nobody, I'm, I got this under control. But really... They they see it. They see it day in and day out in their interactions with you and everything else. You can't lie, really. You can't hide it for for that long of a period of time. And so I found that when I was ready, when I said, "Hey, I need, I think I need help," they rallied around me because they had seen it for for years, and I didn't really know the severity of what they were seeing. But I think when you're ready to surrender, there's going to be at least one person who's who's ready to to help you and really take you to the place you need to go to get to get well. Greg, I like how you said most of the time that's what happens when we reach out to somebody, they rally. And I'm going to take that one step further and say almost every time you hear stories of people burning the ships 
And then this whole fleet of support and encouragement comes to their side, but we have to burn the ships first. And another thing you mentioned, you said, yeah, like you couldn't quite see as clearly what the others could see in your external environment. And that's due to the blinders, right? Alcohol develops so much unconscious behavior. But was there a time when you were able to see it, your outside environment could see it, you knew the gig was up, but you didn't know where to go. Like you asked yourself, how the hell am I going to quit drinking? Did you find yourself in a moment like that? Yeah, it was a really demoralizing uh, night I had. And I had been doing it for a while with with cocaine and alcohol. And I, I just, I woke up and I was living in this, in um, Hollywood Hills in this really kind of dungeon-like apartment with no windows or anything it was just very depressing and i woke up and i went outside and it was raining and i just chain smoked like 10 cigarettes and i knew i needed to reach out to somebody and my sister i just called her and it was the first time i i said i i remember it i wasn't thinking about saying this but it came from my lips and i said i think i need help and i started trembling and kind of crying and she said i'll be there she lived in like uh, Koreatown and she's like, I'll be there in you know, 20 minutes, stay there. I'm going to pick you up and we'll figure this out. And she actually got me, her and my mom uh, kind of worked together and got the resources for me to, to get into a place. And so, you know, I thank them so much uh, for, for being there for me for that. And now was that on October 3rd, 2012? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So it sounds like that was a rock bottom moment. It, it, it wasn't necessarily like a complete dumpster fire, but it sounded like it was like more of a sick and tired of being sick and tired. You wake, you woke up, chain smoked some cigarettes, had that moment of clarity. You reached out for help. And, and listeners, when we, we burn the ships, we can do it in a text with a friend, in passing with a neighbor, but I recommend going right to the source, do it with the people closest to you, which sounds like you did with your sister. And then what happened after that? Uh, after that, I was, I was at my sister's apartment for maybe two, two or three days. I didn't drink, and they looked around. They did a lot of research to find a place where I could get into. And then, yeah, they, I think they, then they took me to this place and I had never really seen a treatment center or I didn't know too much about it. It wasn't something that I was, was readily available, the information for me, but I went there, they did the assessment, the whole nine yards. And I actually didn't go through a detox because I told them I didn't need one, but I probably should have, which I would, you know, encourage anybody who's, you know, going to stop drinking to do a actual detox because you could actually, it's a very dangerous thing to cold turkey off alcohol. But yeah, I was, you know, I was just for two weeks, it was, it was just white knuckling it. And then eventually the clarity started to come. So that's kind of that whole thing. In, in two things, what was the name of the facility? And number two is for listeners who are exploring uh, inpatient treatment, rehab, um, those options, what, what is that like? What can somebody expect to, to go through in a 30 day facility? Yeah, it was uh, called MFI. It was in uh, the Inland Empire and, uh, I guess, you know, you got, a lot of times you'll be in a house. It'll either be, mine was uh, just males. They had a, a men's house and a, a women's house. So, yeah, we were in a house and we we had structure, like waking up at 7 a.m. We had to make our beds, had to get ready. And then we'd go to the, the place where they do the, the groups, the, 
the the individual one-on-ones we'd have therapy you know programming hours for everyone and assignments and and also taking us to outside AA and NA meetings to kind of expose us to that to that kind of family the AA family so yeah it's just it's pretty intense kind of like preparing for battle when you go out into the world and have to be on your own and be able to combat these cravings kind of give you a little tool bag to fill up while you're there so yeah it's very beneficial for anybody who 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 thinks they need to get healthy and get off booze sure and my story doesn't involve a rehab or treatment facility but i did volunteer at hope rehab in thailand in 2016 and i'm going to do the same again yeah in january 2020 i'm actually leaving tomorrow early (laughs) i'm going to get out doing some meetups in australia new zealand and i'm going to get to thailand early before our uh, sober travel trip that departs from thailand i'm going to volunteer there again and what i witnessed is these 30, 60, 90 day treatment facilities. It's a hard reset that puts you back into the routines that uh, with the help of therapy allows you to, to check those thinking behaviors, those actions. And most importantly, you're surrounded by others who are collectively ditching the booze. So you have the chance in these, these centers, these communities to build just that an intense community. And I've heard of people who meet lifelong friends and lifelong connections that lean on each other for accountability and support. There is one thing uh, that I wish there was more support with. It's directly after you leave rehab. I keep hearing of, of people, you know, they get so much support in these treatment facilities and then day one, two or three afterward, it's like, holy shit. I'm in the real world again. So I think there needs to be some sort of like grace period or another program out there. I mean, they're sober living, but um, yeah. Talk to us about your experience right after rehab. How'd you go back out um, into the real world without taking a drink? Well, I just surrounded myself with sober friends and, and family and most of my family on my mom's side, including my, my sister, uh, they, they don't drink. So I lived with my sister for a while and I just, I actually just start immediately kind of started going to school because while I was in uh, treatment, I, I, I found that I was good at kind of talking to the other clients one-on-one and when I'd be out in the, on the patio, they'd come out to me and just kind of talk about what's going on with them. And I thought, well, there's something to this counseling thing if I can be empathetic towards people. And so I looked into it and I started going to a school and um, just really focused on that, went to some meetings, and I spent a lot more time with my family going to, my parents live in Corona, so I'd go, I'd go there a lot. If I felt like I, I was having cravings, I'd just go hang out with my mom and dad or go to my sisters or go to a meeting and just use these different things. But I really was pretty busy because I was going to school full time, and then eventually, after six months or so, I, I got a job helping and and treatment like volunteering some time and then i just dove straight into getting busy and having structure i think structure is the main uh, one of the main things that's important for a recovering addict because boredom can be a real a real trigger and a real killer of uh, sobriety so just tried to stay busy and so what I'm hearing after treatment, you surrounded yourself with other like-minded individuals. You built that in-person community. And you said when you did have cravings, you went to your sisters, you went to your moms. You're reaching out and asking for help for some damn reason is <laughs> so hard yeah. for people struggling with this, including myself, Greg. Why do you think it's so hard for people to, to ask for help when they desperately need it? Is it is it the stigma? Is it the blinders? Is it the grips of the 
drug, alcohol itself? What What's your thought on that? Because that's a big issue. Yeah, that could be a real philosophical question, actually, because they, I think it's all of that, but I, I think it's also this world, you know, it can be pretty cruel and hard sometimes, and, and there's a lot of moments in this life when we are in our quietest moments, we're alone and we have to deal with our problems, and sometimes our pride gets in the way of actually reaching out to someone else and saying, hey, I can't figure this out on my own. Do you have any insight or advice? I know for me, uh, from personal experience, I felt like if I was asking someone for their insight or their advice on something or for help, I felt like I was maybe being a burden on them and that I would take their time and and they'd become resentful of me. And it was a very unhealthy uh, way to look at it. But I think what you find when you do start to practice that is that there's this reciprocal thing that happens in that when you ask someone for help and they're able to help you however they can, it benefits not only you, but it benefits them as well. And it's like a chain effect where it, you know, it, it keeps going on like a domino effect. And that's the only way we can kind of have, you know, balance in this world is if we have that reciprocal uh, relationship with other people. If you hold everything in and you're just walking around, that's how people come become bitter and angry and and you see these these angry people who just don't ask for help and are stuck in their own ways and they never change and they never grow and they never evolve and I think that's the only way to really make the first step towards evolving as a human being is to actually start practicing asking for help or advice. So that's just my personal experience, but I'm sure there's a lot of other aspects to it. Yeah, there's a lot to it. I agree with everything you said. So it's the pride, it's the ego, it's the stigma, it's also the burden. And there's also something else I want to throw out there. It can be the the little child personality inside of us, the part of us that found this magical elixir, which you describe with your first drink and I did as well with my first drink. There's that inner child that's always there that that knows that alcohol is currently working to, to connect the heart and soul and it doesn't want to give it up. So it's so hard to ask for help because there's a big part of the personality is like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to give this up. And then that, that takes us to that moment where we know we have to give it up, but we don't want to. And then we don't know how. And we talked about how you reached out to your sister and that really got the ball rolling. But I want to talk about the burden comment you made. I love that. Right. And I felt the same way, even with my family. I'd send them, even though when like I was in the shit storm of addiction, I'd send a text to my brother and I will go, went back and like read some of these where I was completely sweeping it under the rug. I wasn't clear enough. I wasn't direct. I expected that my brother could read my mind. But once we do open up with this stuff, it's not a burden. And in fact, what you just said, there's a reciprocal healing process that takes place. They need us and we need them. And I think you experience that more with your counseling, with, with empathy, when you're just, you're like, wait a second, I'm talking to these people, it's helping them. And I'm also building my recovery portfolio. There's something to this. Talk to us more about how both parties need each other and how we should set those thoughts of being a burden aside. Yeah, I think that the the person who's suffering obviously needs some some kind of help, some kind of insight, an outside perspective into what they're dealing with. And most, you know, every human being has empathy. So if you ask for help, the person who's helping is going to have empathy and going to want to help you. But there's something very uh, profound about actually helping another person, and that's to be of service. And I think that's why it's such a big 
deal in uh, you know AA and everything is it, it does something to you your you your brain chemistry when you when you help others it it actually you can derive more pleasure out of helping someone else than actually doing a selfish act so if you kind of get in the habit of of trying to be of service as much as you can that's I mean that's how you evolve that's how you become a good person that's how you you know even if you don't want to do it just practice contrary action and eventually you'll find that hey I helped this person today and your your outlook on on the day is better you you wake up the next morning feeling refreshed and so so it's that's how it's reciprocal and that's why it's so beneficial to both parties but yeah I'm trying to remember the end of that other question. Sorry, I kind of went off there. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. And, and guys, the crux of AA, the foundation, is is helping another one who's struggling. And nowadays, you know, that program was started in 1935. And nowadays, we can show that with science and back it up of why that works. And studies show that dopamine, dopamine is released at higher levels when we do something out of gratitude for others and even kickstart that even further. When we do this act of gratitude at active service, not out of fear, for example, well, I guess I'm going to go help somebody who's struggling with their addiction because if I don't, I'll, I'll end up drunk. Um, that's still beneficial. But I mean, you, you hit the, you hit the super highway for dopamine when you help somebody out of love and both parties experience uh profound healing on that and so be conscious of that if you go if you're in a private group a community you're going to meet with somebody you have to do it out of love not out of well if i don't work with this other person you know then i might end up drunk you need to do it out of love and you can bring those unconscious behaviors to the front just be just be conscious of the unconscious self earlier absolutely yeah yeah actually comment on that a bit no i i uh, i agree 100 percent. i mean that's that's exactly what I was saying. So yeah, it, you really put it really beautifully. So, Well, and this was some awareness that I didn't have when I first quit drinking and, and I was doing recovery elevator. I was helping, a, I was working with a lot of people in the groups and texts and whatever. My mindset behind that was like, well, I was, I was told if I don't do this, I'm going to, I'm going to get fucked up and end up drunk. And it, it worked, but halfway through it, I'm like, wait a second. I it's, I enjoy doing this, but I need to make that transition to doing this out of out of a bi- vibrational frequency of love, and it it feels so much better. And it's not necessarily like a one and done switch. I didn't wake up one day and say, "Yes, this is all coming from love." It's something that I've had to work on and and challenge those uh, beliefs and thoughts. And it's been a beautiful journey. And earlier yeah. in the interview, Greg, you mentioned you get your life back. And so in these last seven, eight years, talk to us about how your life came back and that's a pretty impressive resume right working alongside those big name actors being in sneaky beat i mean i've seen you on tv that's pretty cool i'm guessing none of that stuff would have happened if you were drinking it was like living with with massive weights on you know i've always been kind of ambitious to some extent and and wanted to accomplish you know things that might be kind of some say would be unattainable, not that I have accomplished everything that I want to do because there's so much more, but I was operating at like half speed, very sluggish, you know, fog, just climbing up a hill with these giant weights around my legs and trying to succeed and just taking, you know, five times as much time to get to the point where I would be if I had the weights off. And so once I got sober, it, it just, it was like a huge weight off my shoulders those weights came off and and the clarity came back and and just i i think we can't really appreciate the moment there was this thing that happened where i was with somebody and we were at uh, an amusement park and 
there was all this stimulation going on and we enjoyed it. And after that, I asked, I asked the person while we were doing that for that two hours, did you think about anything else other than just being present in the moment? Because there was all this, this stuff going on. And they said, no, that was the first time in a long time where I was just completely present in the moment, not thinking about the future and not thinking about the past. And I missed those times when I was younger, when I could just look at a sunset or sit somewhere and just be completely in the moment. And I think a lot of people take that for granted. And so it's kind of cliche to say, I've been saying it a lot, but just being able to be in the moment of every minute of the day uh, that I possibly can is such a huge gift because you really appreciate how the fragility of life and how at any moment it could be taken away from you. And it's a pretty profound thing to think about. So that's the biggest thing I gained from that. And that goes into being able to be with my daughter and not thinking about, oh, well, I really, I'm loving spending time with her, but I really want to go get a drink. So I'll drop her off in an hour and then I could get drunk. And then when I am getting drunk, I'll miss her. It's like, no, none of that exists. I, I just enjoy my time with her. I, I get those memories and they're not clouded by hangovers. And so it goes on and on, you know? Now I fully agree with the power of the present moment. We've heard a lot about that narrative in the last hundred episodes on this podcast. Can you talk to us a little bit about the detriments of when your mental units of energy are located in the past or located in the future and we're not present? So how can it affect us if we're always thinking about the past or the future? Yeah, if we always think about the past, we're going to tend to be depressed. And if we're always thinking about the future, we're going to tend to be very anxious. And so it could just, it just drags us down. It, it's not productive towards our well-being or towards towards anything that we want to accomplish you know yeah I, I love it i love it and it zaps the power of the present moment and we do need to access the past to make better informed decisions for the now or the future and also we do need some predictability capacity to analyze the future but when we go overboard on on either side of the spectrum that's when we experience depression that's when when we experience anxiety um, and we need to find that sweet spot at the present moment there's just this one quote that I really, really love. It's, uh, it says, it's okay to look at the past, but don't stare. And um, I found that to be pretty, pretty uh, apropos. I, I love it. And what uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza says is when we can access the past without an emotional charge, we call that wisdom. We call it intuition. That When that memory is there to better inform our decision in the future, when there's no label or identity, or emotional energetic charge around it that can make us feel uncomfortable in a moment. And then we can clearly make a better informed decision for the future. And, and that's the best way to ac to access the past. How do we do that? How do we get rid of the emotional uh, baggage? Well, the best way to do that is in this present moment in real time. And we see nature doing that when dogs shake, when ducks flap their wings um, after an altercation. Um, but if there is a buildup, the only time we can uh, release that energy is still in the present moment. And Greg, let me chat with you about Hollywood for a second here. In episode 237, I talk about how addiction is higher in, in this field of work. Wow. Why do you think that is? I think, well, there's several reasons. Uh, it's more readily, readily available. The booze, the, the drugs, it's, it's just all there for you. Also, a lot of artists, from what I've read about, from my favorite actors and musicians to what I know personally, you would think a lot of them to be these gregarious 
extroverted people who, and that's why they act, but really it's kind of the opposite in a lot of cases. They're, they're kind of introverted, shy people who the only way they know how to communicate is to, to kind of perform as somebody else. And so the booze kind of acts like uh, 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 it, you could use it as a buffer to kind of kind of loosen up a little bit and, and be more comfortable and especially having to do press or having it's just the whole milieu of that whole thing is is revolves around around booze and and drugs because it in a way it initially helps to kind of be able to deal with those things or deal with the pressure of those things or to go to a party and be on you got to be on all the time and so there's so many different reasons for that and eventually a lot of people develop real serious problems because they rely on it so much to just get through every pretty much waking hour through the day and it takes a lot of people out it does it takes too many people out too early yeah oh yeah there's man i remember when phil hoffman died it was he was one of my favorite actors and i just and i didn't really know that he had you know that he was struggling with that but but yeah it's it's difficult you go to a function and you're given you know thousand dollars worth of merchandise and you know hundred dollar bottle of this or that and it's just everywhere you can't escape it and so it's really hard i i would imagine especially if you're an a-lister to to be sober in those kind of environments and those kind of situations so more power to the people that are so i almost need a keystroke that's programmed to say the opposite of addiction is connection right i just like push the button and it says that because that's such a profound theme on this podcast now i imagine as you do become a b or an a star or whatever um the authenticity of those connections somewhat fade i imagine even for you um people are like i'm hanging out with greg hill because he he, he he's on sneaky pizza or he's been in operation finale and he's hung out with oscar isaac or sir ben kingsley and maybe some of those connections aren't truly authentic, right? It's their ego. They're building their ego because they want to surround themselves next to, to stars like yourself. So comment perhaps on the authenticity of the relationships in that profession. I don't think they're really authentic at all. I, I think the only way you can have an authentic relationship is if it's with a peer or with people who you grew up with. And a lot of people who do get really successful kind of cut out all the people they grew up with because they're used to having sycophants around them all the time and being treated like, you know, kings and everybody else is a peasant. And I think Matt Damon actually said that the minute you become famous, you uh, emotionally stop maturing. So if you become famous when you're 15, you're pretty much, that's all you're going to develop emotionally. And I think it's, it's kind of true because you don't get treated. I mean, I haven't experienced it at the level of, you know, these people that uh, these A-list, actors but i experienced it a little bit and uh when i went to argentina it was anything i wanted was i i pretty much didn't have to do anything myself so i could see how if you had that every day for years and years just that kind of access and that people treating you that way it could it could really it it changes who you are and and nothing really is authentic anymore nothing everything is superficial and People aren't telling you the truth anymore. You have a bunch of yes men around you. You really don't know what the truth is anymore. You can't find it. And the only way to find it is to keep digging, to keep going back and to keep getting into communities where there are real people who do real things and participate in society in a real raw way. Yeah, Hollywood is 
pretty much the most superficial uh, machine with people that just are out of touch with the way the world really functions. So <laughs> that's, yeah. Wow. Thanks for shedding some insight on that. I loved your answer. Um, and with over seven years away from alcohol, uh, how are you doing it now? I understand you do some speaking engagements. Uh, no, I, I actually, I, I, I work at this, uh, detox and residential facility in San Clemente. It's called South Orange County Detox and Treatment. And I do, I actually do music therapy and acting therapy with the clients there and as well as, you know, counsel them individually. And I find that the way I stay grounded is to kind of stay connected to my people there, you know, to kind of, to, to be around them, to, to talk with them. Because every day I see a miracle, you know, a, a week will go by and somebody will be in a really bad spot. And then all of a sudden there's this life that comes back into them. And I need, I need to see that. If I get too far away from that, I'll forget where I came from. I'll forget that sobriety can really change everything about a person. I mean, you can have somebody who's, you know, a skinhead and, and they hate, they hate everybody and they're just so far along in their addiction. And then all of a sudden you see them a few months later and they're, the most loving, caring, kind person you've ever met. It's just, it's a miracle factory and you see it every day. So, so I need to stay around that and I, I get a lot of pleasure out of it. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and Greg, we've reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 oh, seconds. Wow. Okay. Oh, wow. We have reached it. Are you ready? Uh, yeah. All right, man. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Witnessing my daughter being born. Yeah. Nice. And what's a memorable moment? A life without alcohol has provided you. I guess I'll just say my trip to Argentina. Yeah, and that's where you filmed Operation Finale, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. And what's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Uh, Yerba Mate by Guayaki, the Rebel Berry one. Ah, there we go. Yeah, and, and what are some of your favorite resources? Hey, uh, literature, online literature, just uh, stuff like that, yeah. Gotcha. What's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? Seeing my daughter have kids. Nice. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I think what we touched on earlier, just uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. I could say that as, as the parting piece because I feel like that was my biggest hurdle was coming to the point to where I asked for help. And asking for help does not mean that you're admitting you're weak or that you failed or anything else. It's just saying, I can't do this on my own and I need someone to help pull me out of this. So I would encourage everybody to, to just ask whoever they know. There's so many resources now. Just ask for help. You won't be judged. You won't be shamed. Only progress can be made from that. Yeah, when we ask for help, two big things happen. Number one, we flex the asking for help muscle. Number two, we burn some ships, and that's when it all gets started. And before we depart, Greg, give listeners your own customized you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you get married in a blackout. <laughs> wow, we've had some good ones recently. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Greg, my man, thank you so much for joining us. I loved hearing oh, your thank story. thank you for having me. Yeah, that was fun. Thank, thank you, you so Greg. Much. In sobriety, I like to sit. Previously while drinking, sitting in silence with myself was, well, let's go with excruciating. Now, I love it. So I'm sitting in the Zocalo, or main square in Oaxaca. 
the other day and I see a guy who's probably 23 to 26 years old who's making something with palm leaves and scissors. After the mariachi band takes a break, he runs up to the tables and tries to sell whatever he just made out of the palm leaves and with scissors. Without making a sale, he comes back and sits within 15 feet of me. I get up, walk up to him, and ask him what he was making. He showed me un grillo, or a cricket. I asked him how much. He said 20 pesos, or about $1. I was about to do the gringo thing, and uh, when he said 20 pesos, I was about to say 15. And then I realized, dude, Paul, this is a dollar. And so I ended up giving him 30 pesos. So as I'm walking away, I'm thinking of the poverty in Mexico. And I was wondering, how would he do in America? What if he had my job? Um, I was thinking, would he be able to record a podcast episode, do the research, edit it, upload the episode, run private communities, put on sober retreats, sober travel trips, yada, 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 etc.? And then I say to myself, there's no way this guy could do my job even if his life depended on it. Now hang with me here for a second. So I walked out of the main square and I took a seat on a bench under a light and I started to examine my new purchase, this cricket that I got for $1.50. And I said to myself, damn, this exactly, identically almost resembles a real life cricket. It had antennas, a tail, a body, a head, eyes, ears, legs, all of it. It was a cricket after all. I took a piece of the palm off and I could barely figure out how to put it back in. I looked at this cricket with mindful eyes. There was folds, there was palm leaves overlapping, the cuts, the precision. It was incredible. And then it hit me. There was no way I could make this cricket even if my life depended on it. And at that moment, in the gut area, I realized we were the same person. I was him and he was me. The work that I do requires no more skills than the work that he does. It's just a completely different type of job. The instant I recognized this, I felt a warmth in the heart. Could it be a flood of oxytocin or the connection chemical? Whatever it is, I'll take it. Just like I'm taking my griot, my grasshopper, with me everywhere I go for the rest of this trip. Recovery elevator, it all starts from the inside out. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I love you guys.